Well, good morning. Uh, good to have you here. My name's Gav, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here as we look at the Bible this morning. How good was Cam's testimony? Um, good to see God has work here at City Light and seeing people go from death to life and growing in the love of Jesus. What about hear God speak through his Bible? We believe here the whole Bible is the word of God. And so when it's open and taught, God speaks. It's cool that God speaks today. He's going to speak to you today. So I want to give you just 30 seconds to pray for your own soul. I don't know what week you've had. You know what week you've had. You know what's in your mind. You know how busy and stressed you are or you're not, whatever it is. But I want to give you just 30 seconds to try to get your mind and soul and heart ready to, to hear God speak. And then I'll pray. Take 30 seconds now. Father, we lead busy lives, often too busy. And our minds and our hearts can be so wound up thinking, what's next? Where are we going? The week we've had. And so it's often hard to be still before you. You call it in Psalm 46.10 to be still and know that you are God. We want to ask now that we would just sit at your feet and listen. Whether we know it or not, what we need is more of you and more of your voice in our lives. So as we sit here now and as the Bible is open and taught, we ask that you would just fill us with your spirit purely to hear you speak. Your word is food for our souls. I want to pray for us us, uh, that are feeling tired right now. I want to pray that you would just give, give us energy to stay awake, to hear you speak. We want to hear you speak. So Lord, use me as your servant. Help me to get out of the way and just to, for you just to talk to us and show us your goodness and your love. Thank you that you have set us free. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's a great time of the year. Why? What's well, winter... And there's cricket on. The ashes are on. I love the ashes. Uh, Jez and I have been texting as we watch it, <laughs> saying how we're commenting on the game. It's great to, uh, to enjoy the cricket. Down the ashes are. It's one of the greatest sporting rivalries that's spanned over 100 years. Stravis, England, and the cricket, five match series. It's on at the moment. Hopefully, we'll wrap up the ashes tonight, praying for that. Anyway, also, do you know that at 4 p.m., there's a guy called Jack Armsworth who's really good mates with Pat Cummins, who's the best test bowler in Australia, in the world, sorry. So I feel like I pretty much know Pat Cummins. It's, it's a, he's a mate of mine, anyway. Uh, but at the moment, uh, the Australian cricket team is really basically, I think, held up by one guy called Steve Smith. He's, uh, he, whatever you think of him, uh, he's, uh, he's very, very good, averages over 60 runs when he bats, best in the world, impossible to get out. What do you notice about Steve Smith, though, when you look at him, he's an awkward guy, he's an awkward dude. So fidgety and, and, uh, and weird. And really, as you look at Steve Smith and you read the reports and the articles, watch videos about him, he is absolutely obsessed with his sport, obsessed with batting. Apparently, he's always walking around shadow batting all the time wherever he goes. There's stories of uh, guys, uh, when he's batting in the nets, people throwing the balls to him, 
just say, Steve, I've got a sore shoulder, I can't throw anymore. He's like, no, just more, please, keep throwing, keep going. He faces a thousand balls a day at least of training. I heard a coach say the other day that in the, uh, close to the middle of the night, he heard this tapping coming from, the, from Steve Smith's room. Next morning, coach says, what are you doing? He said, I was batting late at night, just practicing. I heard another report saying during the five-day test match, he doesn't sleep more than three hours at night. And the reporter said, why are you nervous? He said, no, 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 I'm just in bed visualizing where they're going to bowl and where I'll hit it and place the ball when I hit it and where the field is. A man who's obsessed about his sport, he lives for it. And this is not unusual among sports people. There's a sad trend amongst professional athletes who, once they finish their sport, struggle to transition to life after sport. A number of former uh, athletes, professional athletes who suffer deep depression, who become alcoholics, who turn to drugs and alcohol, and some, so sadly, take their lives. There was a report a little while ago, a few years ago, of a, of a man named Dan Vickerman, who took his life after he struggled to transition to life after sport. He had a young family, had, he, was a, he was a trained lawyer, but couldn't cope with life after sport. And it's not just sports people. During the global financial crisis, there was a report a number of bankers and investors and brokers whose investments went bad, and their response was to take their lives. So sad. As humans, I think we are all on a quest, all on a journey, looking for satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment and purpose. And we're all trying to fulfill this longing, looking for things to give us what we want, what we need, what we're searching for. And God has made us this way. He's made us to live for something, to worship something. The writer and, or, uh, the writer and uh, pastor Paul Tripp says this, human beings are by, very, by their very nature are worshippers. Worship is not something that we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. We all worship. The question is, what do we worship and what do we serve? Sports people worship sport. Bankers, investors worship money. But what happens when what we worship doesn't give us what we want? When the sport ends, when the money runs out, when what we live for doesn't deliver? David Foster Wallace, you might have heard this before, David Foster Wallace, and an award-winning postmodern novelist, not a follower of Jesus, wrote this. I'll read this quote to you. It says this, everybody worships. The only choice, is we, get, the only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they, never ta- and if they, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, that, uh, then you'll never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and, sexu- and sexual allure. And you're always, always feeling, uh, or you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before, the, uh, before they finally plant you. On one level, we already know this stuff. It's, it's, it's codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and bromards and epigrams and parables. The skeleton of every great story. The trick is keep the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, as you're always on the verge of being found out, and so on. We worship something. It's who we are. The question is, what do you worship? 
God has made us to be worshippers. Today's we look at Exodus 32. We look at this famous story of the golden cow, of worshipping the golden cow. And we'll see Israel struggle with trying to work out what do they worship. God has set them free, his treasured possession, to be his, free to worship him. And we'll read of them making bad choices that have huge consequences. And I want to say, this passage here serves for us as a warning, to heed God's warning. We're going to look at Exodus 32. Here's my three observations to help you navigate. We're going to go, we'll look at the whole chapter. It's a really good narrative to walk through. It's a really good story to, to think about. I've been challenges I've read it. Hopefully it's the same for you. But here are the three observations, the crime, the uh, confrontations, and the consequence. Crime, confrontations, and the consequence. Where we are in the story, we're almost at the end. We've seen so far that God has rescued his people out of slavery, and and he has called them his chosen people, his treasured possession. He has rescued them by his mighty hand. And he's rescued them, and then he gave them the Ten Commandments and said, here's how to live as my people. Here's how to flourish as my people, being a holy nation, and representing me to the world. That's now your job. You represent me to the world. How you live and respond reflects on me. That's who you are. And we read this in Exodus 24, 3. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words, the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said this, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So here, Israel are agreeing. They're saying, great God, we'll do what you've called us to do. We'll be who you want us to be. And here they are really entering into a relationship with God. The language of the Bible is a covenant relationship with God. It's an agreement they have made together. And so we come to chapter 32 today. And Moses has been up on the mountain for about 40 days and setting up on how God will come and dwell with his people. For the last 40 days, setting up how God's going to come and dwell among his people. And uh, look what happens next, the crime. Sentences uh, 1 to 6 from chapter 32. It says this, When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, people gathered themselves to Aaron and said this, Up, oh, make us gods who shall go before us. For this man Moses, who has brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has come of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in, your, uh, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The last few chapters of, this, of, of, of Exodus, the narrative has been focused up on the mountain for Moses and God meeting together. Um, and the camera now sort of swings down below to see what's going on among the people. And it's not good. The people are running wild. They are out of control. And the crazy thing here is you read is Israel is saying, let us, let us make a God who will go before us. God's been doing this already. He has been going before them. And Moses is even up on the mountain Getting, uh, getting instructions about how God will dwell among the people, which is what they want already. And we read this chapter 32, and it's, and it's a tragedy, and it's an offense. It doesn't take long for things to fall apart, just 40 days without Moses there, and things fall horribly apart. 
They can't see Moses, so they just move on. They get really impatient, and they say to Aaron, make a God for us, one we can see, one that is tangible, one that is mute, who won't tell us what to do, one who is weak in control what to do with this God. And what's even more crazy, if you think about this, probably in the morning, before they got up, they would have got out, they would have seen manna on the ground that God had sent for them, his provisions for them. He'd blessed them with food, just as he said he was going to do. And they turn a blind eye to this. Can you see how Israel, what they're saying and doing is an offense? This is a rebellion against the kindness of God. The whole time God has been moving toward his people, offering life and grace, and he has set them free in spite of what they've been doing to him. Then in a moment of stress, they freak out, rebel against the good God, and run back to what has enslaved them, worshiping fake gods, fake idols, forgetting God's Ten Commandments, which is for their good and for their flourishing. When he has said, worship me alone, make no idols, they say, no thanks, we're going to go over here, we'll take the manna, but we don't want you. They make an idol, a golden cow in sentence four, and you see what they said? They were basically saying, this lifeless cow that we made is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Praise the golden cow, our deliverer. Now, put yourself in God's shoes for a minute. How, how do you feel at this point? Now, it's even more crazy. Think back to the ten plagues. You might have heard me say this a while ago. With the ten plagues, what God was doing, he was showing his mighty hand against Egypt, but he was also showing the Israelites that the gods of Egypt are nothing. And each plague correlated to a god they worshipped in Egypt. And he was wiping them out. So when he, sent, when he sent the plagues, he was saying, I'm going to defeat those gods as well. Now, when God sent the plague to wipe out the cattle, he was saying, I'm defeating the, 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 god, the, uh, the, the cow god that you worship, or, the, or the, the bull god that you worship. I've defeated that god. But now Israel are resurrecting this dead god that God defeated and worshipping and saying, this is the god who rescued us. A huge offense to who God is. God has set them free to be His, to set them free to worship Him alone for their good. What are they doing? They're running back to an idol, a dead God that God has defeated and worshiping it and giving it the praise for what the true God has done for them. It's an offense and it's a tragedy. It's a crime. One of my, uh, one of my happy places is watching people fall over or fail. I love it. Um, not hurting themselves too bad, right? <laughs> Don't give me too wrong. But it's a good fail. One of my most favorites, and I watched it this week, and I was laughing again. I've said it like a million times, and Katie's like, are you still laughing? I'm like, yes, I still laugh at this. As the amazing race contestant who gets the watermelon in the face, oh my gosh, I was going to show it. There's, look, I, I was going to show the video, but I was laughing too much. I had to stop the sermon. Because I love, if you haven't watched this, she doesn't get hurt. She's okay afterwards, but she's fine. So don't, she doesn't get knocked out. She's okay. But you should watch this. The commentary is the best. Her partner says, pow, right in the kisser. I lose it at that. I'm in stitches. I love it. And her partner makes her keep doing the race afterwards. It's so good. Anyway, watch the video. I love laughing at people when they fail. But you know what? I hate being laughed at. I hate being laughed at. I do not like being laughed at when I fail. The other day I was at school and I was holding Sab's hand and she pulled me over and I fell over. And because I'm big, people laugh when I fall over. Right? I, yeah, I get it. And so I was really embarrassed. Like, no one saw me. You know, I get up and looking around really quick and I was okay. I hate being laughed at. 
I don't like it. It's my pride. I'm not good at laughing at myself at all. I hate being seen as stupid or I failed at something. And I don't think really any of us like being laughed at. We want to be seen as having things together. You know, I think when we hear this story of Israel worshipping a golden cow, we can look at them and laugh at them and say, how stupid are they? How dumb are they that they can worship a golden cow and say, this cow rescued us from Israel, rescued us from Egypt, sorry. How stupid is that? We've, made, we've fashioned it with our earrings and with our hands. We're giving praise to a golden cow and worshipping it instead of the true God. What would make you worship an idol and trust in an idol and trust in a false god? Seems stupid. But when you step back and you think about this, are we really that different to Israel? Now, we, we don't worship fake idols out of gold, and we don't do that. We're more sophisticated than that. But are we any different? Are not our hearts prone to idolatry, prone to worshipping false gods? What is idolatry? It's, we, it's, it's, what we, it's what we put in the place of God that captures our imagination and our heart that we become servants of that object of worship. And what we worship is the primary influencer of our thoughts and our emotions and our actions and our lives. We live for this thing. We don't worship golden cows. We, like I said, we're more sophisticated than that. But there are things we spend all of our time and our money and our energy on because we think this thing will give us life. This thing will give us happiness. This thing will satisfy me. And the desire for these created things eclipses our desire for God. It might be approval or love or desire we crave or objects that we must have or a status we must have or how we must be seen. It might be relationships, success or wealth or the idol of comfort, which is huge, or popularity, what people think of you. And these things become idols that we serve in a sense they determine our actions. I've heard it said the idol of our day is achievement. Achievement is the idol or alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol, instead they abuse their lives. So we work 90, 100 hours a week, flogging ourselves, sacrificing everything. Driven by the God of success, power, we are driven to achieve and we are to sacrifice everything to get there. We build our little golden cows to our relationships, to careers, to status, to family, to others' opinions. They're our golden cows. And the crazy thing is, these things are not made to be worshipped, but rather enjoyed, giving thanks to a creator for what he has created. And the danger with idolatry is, is when idols grab a hold, we are willing to sacrifice anything, compromise what we once, what we once believed or held to, and become enslaved. Whatever the idol is, we tell ourselves we have to have it. It will make us happy. It will fulfill us. It will complete us, and we need it. And often the problem is when we achieve it, and it doesn't deliver. Because it was never made to give you what you're looking for. It was not made to be worshipped. And whatever controls you is your God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. 
We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the God of our lives. We're enslaved. And the key to change, the key to being to freedom, is identifying these idols. Here are a bunch of questions I think that are helpful to identify your golden cows. What do I worry about most? What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad or get difficult? Uh, what do I do to cope? How do I feel better? What pre- preoccupies me and what, what I daydream or think about? What makes me feel the most self-worth? For what do I want to be known for? What prayer, unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What do I really want and expect out of life? And what would make me really happy? And what is my hope for the future? These are questions to be asking ourselves to identify the idols, to be free from them. Because playing with idols, I think, is like playing with a boa constrictor. The longer the idol is left unchecked, the more it slowly starts to squeeze your heart and wrap around it. And the idol then crushes our heart and our love for God until it's almost extinguished. And I've seen this happen so many times. I see it in my life. And if we're going to be free to worship God as we're made to do and to be, we need to identify the idol and then run to Him knowing that He is the only one who can fulfill our lives, who can give us freedom that we are looking for and the satisfaction and hope that we need. And we also know if we fail Him, He'll forgive us. I think this chapter here serves as a strong warning as the, of the danger of idolatry that is so rampant in our culture. Israel had been set free to worship the one true God. But they choose to worship a golden cow. And all what happens after this, the rest of the chapter basically is showing you what happens when idolatry takes, takes hold. There's only consequences and confrontations. Have a look at this, confrontations. The first confrontation we see is between God and Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. God sees what's going on. He says to Moses, hey Moses, your people are out of control. You need to go down there and sort it out. And they've turned against me. And God says, I'm not going to have it. Sentence 10, you read this and it's confronting. It says this. God says to Moses, now, therefore, let me alone or leave me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. God's saying, I'm not going to have it. These are my people representing me. I'm not going to allow it. You might think that's a bit full on. And it is full on. But remember who God is. He rescued these people. He's the Holy One who has nothing messed with or played with. And they have, they have complained again and again and they've rebelled against Him now. And this is the final blow with the golden cow. And idolatry doesn't simply affect the person. It has consequences on relationships and with relationship with God. I want to say idolatry really is Adultery. Remember when Israel were in an exclusive covenant relationship with God? The Bible uses this language of covenant relationship to speak of a marriage as well. So in a sense, when Israel and God in a covenant relationship, they're in, a, in almost like a marriage, and God has almost become their husband. Now in chapter 32, Israel replaced God with a golden cow, and it's almost as if a husband has found his wife in bed with another man while they're still on a honeymoon. It's an offense. And God's response to rebellion against his kindness is wrath. He hates sin. He's holy and glorious and he will not tolerate it. He's not indifferent. And if he was indifferent to this, 
He will not be good and glorious. He will judge. He's angry. And look what happens next. So Moses then confronts God on this. Look at 11 to 14. I'll read this. But Moses implored the, implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he, did God, bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? God, uh, uh, God uh, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, uh, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. Moses is reminding God of his covenant promises. And so the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. The Lord relents here. He doesn't wipe out the people. You can read that and go, hey, what's going on? Has Moses convinced God to change his mind? Seems a bit odd, right? Moses intervenes and prays on behalf of his people. What's God doing here? What's happening? Well, I want to say that sentence 10 gives us a clue here. God says to Moses in sentence 10, leave me alone so I may consume these people. But the implication is, when you leave me alone, I will destroy your people. But if you don't leave me alone, things may turn out differently. So Moses takes up this invitation and pleads to God to have mercy, and, the, and his plea for mercy is heard. Now, there's a bit of, I think there's a bit of mystery going on in here, the mystery of God's sovereignty and how prayer all fit together. It's clear in the Bible that God does not change his mind. Numbers 23, 19, 1 Samuel 15, 29... God does not change his mind. So what's this interplay between prayer, of Moses interceding, and God's sovereignty? I think Tim Chester puts it this way, and I think this is really helpful. He says this, Perhaps the best way to look at it is that God is in charge of all things. He's in charge of our prayers. We freely choose to pray what God has freely chosen we should. And God freely chooses to respond to the prayers that he has ordained we should say. So God intends our prayers to be the means by which he changes the world. He decides to use our prayer to change his decisions. It's a helpful understanding. It's, it's, I think there's the mystery of God in this, but prayer and God's sovereignty working together here, and we see this played out here. But what we do see in the bigger picture of things is that whatever is going on here, idolatry is serious. And God is, God is angry, but he shows mercy. But it's not just just God who's angry. Moses is angry as well. So what does Moses do? Comes down the mountain and he confronts. He confronts the people. Look at sentences 19 and 20. And as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and he saw the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets which he had in his hand from God. He threw them and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made, and he burned it with fire, and he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. Moses smashes the tablets that has come from God, that God had written with his hand. And he smashes them, not in a fit of rage, but rather saying, this relationship with God and Israel is done. You did not keep your side, Israel. And this covenant relationship is smashed. Then he makes them drink the golden cow. It reminds me of my parents threatening to wash my mouth out with soap. Sort of mind you, they threatened if I swore, soap in the mouth. Didn't ever happen. <laughs> but what he Moses follows through here. You want to do this? You want to drink it. And he makes them drink it. 
He's not playing. He shows how serious sin and idolatry is. Then what happens is Moses goes to Aaron, confronts the leader. Have a look at this, 21 to 24. Moses says to Aaron, why did this people do, do, uh, do, what did these people do to you that, that you brought them such a great, a great sin upon them? And Aaron said this, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who should go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we didn't know what's come of him. So I said to them, let anyone who made gold take it off. So they gave it to me, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Like magic, pop, there it is. Now you read this and go, what is happening? This is laughable. This is, Aaron is weak and he's confronted for his sin by Moses and a lack of leadership and lead the people to compromise. Because Moses, Aaron said, you can worship God and the cow has better both of them. But he's helping them to move away from the worship of the one true God and him alone. And he sort of tries to say, it's their fault, not mine. Cow came out, maybe the hand of God, who knows, whatever. Compromise. Growing up, I feared getting in trouble. I feared, I didn't want to get in trouble. I was always that good boy in class who just did what the teacher said, but I feared getting in trouble. And it's still in me now. I, I uh, find going to the movies hard because they have set seating. You know that thing where they get your movies? And I have to sit in my seat. If there's an empty cinema, I'm finding my seat and sitting right in my seat because I didn't want anyone to come and say, excuse me, sir, you're in my seat. That freaks me out. So I, can't, I have to sit in my seat. A few years ago, I was, um, I was driving up the Gold Coast with my family and it was late. The kids were asleep, were on the freeway and I was doing 110 and then, and then I saw a roadworks on that said 50, had to drop down to 50. I didn't drop down to 50, I dropped down to about mid-60s, thinking I'm tired, I just want to get to the destination. I'm trying to justify my sin there, aren't I? But I just didn't want to, all of a sudden, red and blue lights behind me started flashing, busted. My fears of getting in trouble through the roof, kids wake up, what's up dad? Nothing, shh, go to sleep, just close your eyes. <laughs> Nothing's going, they're just asking how I'm going. No, shh, anyway, it's fine. Anyway, <laughs> my fears going through the roof, I'm getting in trouble, policeman says, did you know the 50 zone? In my head, I'm thinking, what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? I'm like, um, yeah, man. No, I didn't see the sign. Um, I saw the sign. Anyway, tried to sort of justify what I did, you know, sin on sin, not owning what I did, blame that I didn't see the sign, thinking, yeah, it should be 110. There was like one little pothole. I could keep going, trying to justify what I didn't own what I did. And it's the same thing here with Aaron, right? He's confronted on his sin, what he's done. And he says to Moses, hey, Moses, chill out. These people are evil. You know they're evil. And they cornered me and they wanted me to do this thing and I just did it and then, well, popped the golden calf. Like, it's, it's just, he's running from what he did. Sin and idolatry leads you to compromise. It leads you to playing down sin, to tolerating it, to having a bit of God, a bit of golden cow, a bit of my idol of success, a bit of God can manage them, no big deal. And God's saying, no, big deal, massive deal. God does not and will not tolerate this. He will not share his glory with another with compromise, as Isaiah 42 says. He knows that sin and idolatry is not to be played with. Jesus says, I cause you to sin, pluck it out. I'm causing you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is saying, no compromise. He knows Again, this, this story serves as a warning. Is don't leave sin unchecked, idolatry unchecked. It will consume you. 
holiness matters. And God calls his people to be holy, Israel to be holy, as we represent him as a holy God. And he will not tolerate it. As we keep going in the story, we read of the, of the, the devastating consequences of idolatry and sin. Look what happens next. And it's confronting. Moses calls it out. He calls them out. Instead, it's 25 to 28. 26, he says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. You're either for God or against him. You choose a side. You can't have both. Choose a side. Whose team are you on? Moses is saying, no compromise. Worship God alone. He has set you free to worship him, not to worship idols. But Moses says, choose wisely because there are consequences. People choose, and you read a confronting part in sentence 27. People choose Moses and say, right, I'm with you. Moses says, okay, great. Get a sword, strap it onto your side. Then go throughout the camp and kill those who are against us. And we read in sentence 28 that 3,000 people were killed that day. And this is confronting. This is brutal. But again, it's showing that sin and idolatry is dangerous and God will not tolerate it. These are his holy people, and he will not tolerate this. And this chapter, I think, is meant to shake us up out of our complacency and remind us of the holiness of God and the dangers of compromise and sin. And it's confronting. But at the very end, this sad and tragic and offensive story, we get this story of hope. Sentences 30 to 32, let me read this for you. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. So the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you and your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. So Moses goes and intercedes again. Uh, for Israel to God. And he wants to atone, he says, for their sin. And atonement means to pay a ransom, to try to make up or to pay for what has been done. He wants to restore Israel and God back together again. He knows that the best thing for Israel is to worship God alone and to restore this relationship. And he, but he also knows their idolatry and sin deserves punishment. So he wants to atone for that. And in sentence 32 even says, God, if you can't forgive them, Blot me out of the book, the book of life, and, and, and take them. Punish me, don't punish them. That's pretty incredible for Moses. They have just disowned him and said, that guy, Moses, he, what's he doing? They've disowned him. Moses says, Lord, punish me, not them. That's an incredible act of mercy and grace and kindness on Moses' behalf. Problem is, though, Moses can't do this. He can't atone for Israel's sin. Why? Because he too is sinful. He can't even pay for his own sin, let alone uh, the nation of Israel's sin. The cool part here is, Moses here is a picture of a greater Moses to come. That greater Moses is Jesus. See, when Jesus comes, this story points towards Jesus. When Jesus comes, he does make atonement for sin. He can pay for sin. Because he is perfect. He never sinned. He is the right substitute to stand in sinner's place and to face the judgment for our sin idolatry. 
And Jesus' death on the cross pays for sin for all time. He covers Israel's sin. He covers our sin, past, present, future. And he does what Moses couldn't do but wanted to do. Jesus is God's rescue plan for humanity. He saves. He atones. Sin's past, present, future, freely taken away on the cross. His atoning work was, his atoning work was so profound, it didn't just burst in the future, it went to the past as well. No guilt, no shame, innocent. And our greatest problem has been solved once for all. Our future is guaranteed. We are heirs to the kingdom. And no matter what comes at us in this life, we can rejoice. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. This is worth celebrating and rejoicing over, that Jesus has paid it all. Our hearts are prone to sin, are prone to idolatry, but on the cross, Jesus has taken away and atoned for that. This is worth rejoicing. You know, why do we gather here on a Sunday? Why do we sing and raise our hands and spend time together each week? It's because Jesus paid it all. All our sins have been paid for, and we can rejoice. I want to say for those of us who follow Jesus, let's rejoice. We have been freed from sin, from the burden of death, and declared not guilty. We have been freed from the slavery to idols, to false gods that leave us empty and unfulfilled. And now we can live for and, live for and worship the one thing that will satisfy us. This is worth celebrating. This is worth telling the world about, that we are free. We are no longer enslaved. And we can enjoy life and enjoy gifts of this world as gifts, not worshipping them and making them gods. I want to encourage us to fight hard in His power, not to worship idols, but to fight sin knowing that Jesus is better. Idolatry is deadly. Do not compromise. Let's shake off our complacency. And throw off the sin that entangles and look to our great King Jesus and asking Him for help, knowing there is grace and, and mercy when we fail. I want to say today, if you don't know Jesus and you are here, hear Him speaking to you today. Think hard, ask questions, hear the warning of judgment, and hear God saying to you today, I have set you free, I have paid for it all your sin in Jesus. I want to say, hear the warning of Hebrews 10, that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God without Jesus. I'm not trying to scare anyone into the kingdom. I'm just speaking truth that there is a day of reckoning coming. Are you right with the living God? And if you were to die tonight and face Him, would you be confident of where you're going? Would you be confident to face the living God? Acts 4.12 says this, For there is no other name under heaven by which man or anyone can be saved. That name is Jesus. There is no other name. I want to say, if you don't know Jesus, why not today come to God? We're going to have a reflection time after this. Why not say to Jesus, thank you so much for, giving me, for dying on the cross for me. Help me to live for you. Help me to trust in you. If you do this, I want you to tell someone right in the slip, tell the person you came with. That's what we are as a church, celebrating, helping, helping each other to love Jesus. We've been set free to worship God. Let me pray for us.
Father, I want to thank you so much for the goodness of your word, that it is like a mirror that just reflects back on us. We read this story of Exodus 32, and at first reading, we laugh and think, how silly, how stupid. But then, as we look at it, we see ourselves. We see our hearts that are prone to wander. We see our hearts that are prone to chase after idols. Lord, show us. Forgive us. Holy Spirit, empower us to see what we are chasing after and see they are nothing. The idol of relationships, of success, of money, of comfort that entangle us of approval, of fear. Lord, help us to see that Jesus is better. Make our hearts believe that we would run from those things things that entangle and run to you, our true King. Thank you there is grace when we fail. And thank you that it's all been done. And Jesus, you have atoned for us on the cross. Help us to rejoice that we are free and to worship you, finding life to the full in this truth. Thank you so much. Lord, help us shake us out of our complacency, wake up our sleeping hearts to rejoice in these truths. Pray it all in King Jesus' name. Amen.